Welcome to the Superpowers for Good show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe. John Hugo, the CEO and General Secretary of Rotary International, joins us today to discuss his work. As CEO, he's personally helped raise over $50 million to end polio and is otherwise engaged in leading the global effort. He'll also teach us how to master his superpower, diplomacy. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming back to visit with me again. It's just a thrill to reconnect. Uh, you know, you've been on the show uh, three or four times in the past. It's great to have you back, and I really appreciate it. Uh, you, you, in our last conversation, we talked a little bit about diplomacy, and I'm excited to talk about that again. So, thank you for coming back. Yeah. Oh, Devin, thanks again for having me. Delighted to be with you. Well, you're you're, you're kind. Now. Um, you really are a, a, a serious capital D diplomat uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, you worked in the uh, Bush administration in a genuinely diplomatic role uh, at the uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation, uh, helping do uh, foreign assistance, foreign development, um, and in a negotiator role, as I understand it, uh, much of the time. Uh, you were a lawyer uh, in Europe, where you would have been negotiating cross-border issues all the time. And of course, uh, in your role at Rotary, you deal uh, with lots of Rotarians, including those who are elected to a variety of positions and have a lot of power in the organization. So you're, you're constantly stressed, you know, stretching, building this diplomatic muscle. Uh, tell us just a little bit about those experiences and how you've used diplomacy in your career. Well, you're absolutely right, Devin. I think you know, sort of diplomacy as a sort of a, an umbrella term for um, really getting people with diverse points of view to yes is extraordinarily, extraordinarily important. And as you mentioned, I've had several phases in my career and all of them have required this, this skill set of taking uh, people with opposing different views and, and sort of forging a deal, a consensus, and getting getting to yes. So as you mentioned, I did have the privilege of working in the in the Bush administration uh, in the early part of the uh, of this uh, of this century. And uh, President Bush and uh, Congress established back in 2004 a new United States government foreign assistance agency called the Millennium uh, Challenge Corporation, and it was really designed as not to compete with. Uh, USAID, which has been historically our, the primary vehicle by which the U.S. delivers its foreign assistance, but really meant to complement what uh, what AID was doing. And, my, and I was, um, you know, had been previously a partner with a large international law firm, as you had said, practicing in in Eastern Europe for many many years, and uh, sort of switched gears and and and, be, and went out sort of on the business side of things. And so I was sort of the, the chief negotiator, the United States negotiator, uh, with our part with the partner countries that we were working with to get these foreign assistance agreements. Uh, negotiated, structured, and and finalized. And so, in my tenure at MCC, I was able to uh, finalize deals for about six point three billion dollars worth of U.S. foreign assistance to to uh, to 18, 18 countries. Although we were working with about twenty six at the at the time. And so, yeah, that, that was that was sort of pure diplomacy. It was dealing with these countries, uh, trying to understand what their needs were, and then fashioning a a, a program that met both U.S. needs 
and the, the goals of the program, but also with what the countries were interested in having us having us uh, finance. And similarly, you know, as I mentioned, practicing law before that, um, I was a deal lawyer, uh, you know, a lot of inbound investment. I was working in, in the Soviet Union and then in Russia and then Ukraine and the Czech Republic. And, uh, you know, it was all about getting the deals done, negotiating with, you know, sometimes very contentious points of view. And now at Rotary, it's, it's, a, it's a global nonprofit. We have 1.2 million Rotarians, 75% of them are outside the United States, uh, uh, 200 countries and locations. It's sort of like the living United United Nations and all our governance structures are represented by all these various uh, ethnicities and countries and uh, peoples from around the world and sort of get this enormous organization moving. You have to, yeah, it's all about diplomacy, forging alliances, uh, giving and taking and, and trying to get to, get to yes. Uh, so it's, a, it's, it's an umbrella concept that works in the private sector and nonprofit, government. Uh, it's in some ways human nature, right? If you want to get anything done and people do have different points of view, you've got to compromise and you've got to be diplomatic and use diplomatic skills. John, that you you really have had just an extraordinary diplomatic uh, career, and I'm grateful that you'd share some of those experiences with us. Uh, from your vantage point, you have a unique view as to how Rotary is using that as part of its central initiative around the eradication of polio. Tell us a little bit about how diplomacy plays a role. Well, as you as you mentioned, uh, Devin, you know, polio is uh, eradication. Of polio is our sort of signature corporate initiative, and I think what's interesting, uh, uh, perhaps interesting for your audience, is that this is really a an effort that was undertaken by a nonprofit. It was really a nonprofit, not a, a multilateral institution or a Ministry of Health that had the audacity back in 1985. Rotary did to say we're going to eradicate a disease from the face of the earth, and then three years later, we were joined by CDC, UNICEF, WHO to create the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. And then more recently, the Gates Foundation has joined us as well as Gavi, the Global Vaccine uh, Alliance. And it's an extraordinary effort. We had 350,000 cases per year of polio back in 1985, uh, more than 125 countries. And really through the concerted effort of the GPI uh, and uh, Rotarians over the last 30 some years, we've now gotten uh, to where the wild polio virus is only circulating in two countries, Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. And so diplomacy uh, was a vital component to getting the world to the brink of eradicating this, this terrible disease. And in fact, if we eradicate polio, it'll only be the second time a human disease has been eradicated, the first one being, uh, being, being smallpox. And so diplomacy was used on a, on a, number, on a number of levels, uh, certainly within the GPI, Obviously, you have you have five, six partners, all have their perspective, all have their views, all have their roles to play and sort of fashion over a 30 some year period, a coherent strategy that's been very, very successful has required you know, diplomatic skills on all of our partners, again, to get to yes in terms of our policies, our procedures and how we how we operate. Also, you know, in terms of the actual eradication efforts, uh, how do you eradicate polio? Well, it's getting two drops of polio vaccine in the mouth of every child in the world. And that requires physically getting to the children, physically putting in those two, in those two, those two drops. And as you're aware, Devin, uh, historically, and certainly now, uh, there are certain segments of populations, societies that are you know, opposed to vaccines or afraid of vaccines or feel that vaccines are a plot by someone to do something to somebody. And so Rotarians, because we have this 
extraordinarily deep roots in almost every community in the world. In fact, I like to say there's probably not a politician in the world who doesn't have a Rotarian as a constituent. We were able to utilize those deep community roots and our ability to work with members of the community to go into those areas where there is vaccine hesitancy, work with local religious, community, other leaders to break down those barriers, to build trust, and to you know increase the level of vaccine acceptance. And, and the, the proof is in the pudding, where again, we're down to just two countries, Afghanistan and Pakistan, where the wild virus is still circulating. Um, so it's really been diplomacy on the global stage in terms of working with our partnerships, diplomacy at the grassroots uh, level, and also, you know, sort of diplomacy within the organization to ensure that for 30 years, we've stayed singularly and passionately focused on this on this effort. And that means bringing people together. It means building coalitions. It means convincing people that this is a cause that's worth fighting for, even though it's it's taken us 30 some, 30 some years to do it. Yeah. You know, John, there's this interesting dynamic uh, in my mind uh, between negotiating and diplomacy, where in, in a world of negotiations, I see the, the paradigm being win-lose. Uh, I win, you lose, or vice versa. With diplomacy, it seems to me that there is an opportunity for people to move forward in a way that is win-win. Um, I don't know if that framing means anything to you, if that resonates as relevant, yeah. but I wonder if you could give us some coaching on how to be better diplomats. Everyone listening wants to do this better. So whatever they're doing, trying to make the world a better place, some diplomacy, some diplomatic skills are going to help everybody. Yeah. Well, you know, I think I, I you know, I, I've, I'm not, I would perhaps frame the negotiation versus diplomacy slightly differently that yes, negotiation, I'm trying to enter into a contract. I'm trying to buy a house. I'm trying to do, you know, let's say you're having commercial negotiations. Uh, you're obviously trying to get a good, as good a deal as you can for yourself. But at the end of the day, you have to get to yes. And getting to yes means that both sides feel that this is the deal worth worth getting. Now, obviously, sometimes you have such overbearing negotiating power that you can grind somebody into the ground to, you know. But if you really want something to work, and and especially if you're, it's not a one-off transaction, if it's something that's going to kind of stay the course, like for example, these foreign assistance agreements we were negotiating with the, our partner countries when I was at the Millennium Challenge Corporation, well, it wasn't just sign a contract, buy a house, move on. No, it's a long five-year, ten-year relationship that you're developing, and, and if the agreement is one-sided, it's going to it's going it's going to fail. So I do think you need diplomacy even in the negotiating context because you want something that's going to last. You want both sides to feel that they're comfortable with the transaction, and then move forward. And and, and implementing, but I think the skills that are that are needed is, and certainly if you're talking about Rotary, which is this huge multi-ethnic, multinational organization with competing points of view and different perspectives, it's really trying to get understand what the other side is thinking. What are they trying to achieve? What are they interested in? Where, and and I, the way I like to work these things is basically to say, okay, we want to get to here. What can we agree on today? What can we agree? There's 20 things. Which of these 20 can we already agree on? And really isolate it down to the one or two things over which there is there is disagreement. Because if you sort of start the conversation, whether it be a diplomatic one or a negotiating one, where you know arguing about what you disagree with, you or you're not quite sure what it is that you're disagreeing on, um, you wind up spending and wasting a lot of time. So what I would do when I would sit down with a lot of these governments and say, okay, we got 20 things here. What can we actually agree on? 
Good, done. Let's put that off to the side. Now we're just down to these three issues. And let's really, really hone in on those. Once we got those sorted out, uh, we, we can we can move on. And similarly within an organization like Rotary, it's really, you have different perspectives, different takes. Some parts of Rotary world are more conservative, more progressive than others. And it's really bringing people together, making everyone feel comfortable that there are no first or second class citizens in this conversation, and really trying to understand what the, what's driving the other person's perspective. And then finding those points in common that you can actually agree on and then building off of those. And the other thing that I'm saying is revolutionary or even new. It's kind of a sort of standard principle of let's sort of, you know, you look into polls, they talk about confidence building measures, right, between two competing groups. Let's, let's sort of work on things that we can agree on, show some success and keep building on that rather than focusing exclusively on what it is you're disagreeing on. That confidence building, let's let's dig down a little bit deeper. I, I, I think it's related to this idea you were talking about where understanding, uh, focusing, understanding where the agreements are so that you can move on to negotiate the, the things where there's disagreement. But it seems like that, that confidence building is a critical step for understanding what is really going on there. Yeah, it's, it's confidence building. It's also showing respect to the other side. I think, you know, coming in all guns blazing belligerent is, 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 is absolutely the wrong, is, is absolutely the wrong approach. You know, it's sitting down again, trying to put in place those confidence building measures, what it is that we can actually agree on, honing it down to what we can disagree on. And even in the things that we can disagree on, very often I find it's, 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 it's really a, one or two tiny little things. For example, one of the countries that we were working with at, at MCC, we were nego- trying to negotiate the, um, the, what were going to be the procurement guidelines for the, fun- the money we were giving to the countries. They were then going to procure out the services to build the road or whatever it is they were going to do with, with the money. And this country we were working with saying, oh, no, no, we, you, we can't use this. We, our, procure- our law doesn't allow this. Da, da, da. And then my team was getting all wrapped around. It, it, we can do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. And I said, stop, stop. Let's put the country's procurement regulations on the table right now. And let's highlight those things that do not meet our requirements, our standards that we're asking them. And it came down to two sentences out of a 25-page document, okay? So rather than having this big mega conversation about you can't tell us what to do, our procurement rules are what they are, and nobody's going to jam these down our throats, and us saying, well, but we have our rules and there's no... I said, let's figure out exactly what it is that they can't live with. And it turned out to be two simple sentences. And then that just unblocked everything. At the end of the day, that was the only... Two things that, you know, so I think, again, it's sort of taking things to, okay, we can, all this is cool. These are the last two items. And you find very often those two items aren't all that, in many cases, aren't all that significant. But once you start honing in on that versus the broader mega picture of this is ridiculous, you can't force us to do something that's against our law. Well, let's find out exactly what it is that's against it. So, um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's diplomacy. It's non-belligerence. It's trying to find common ground. It's confidence building and narrowing it down to those issues. It uh, doesn't mean you're always going to get to yes. Maybe those last few issues are ones that you just can't square the circle on, in which case it is what it is. But at least you knew you got down to the nub of the issue. And it wasn't due to misunderstanding yeah. or kind of a big theoretical discussion over a big ticket issue uh, that's probably not solvable at that big ticket level, but you can solve it if you start getting down into the details. Well, it, it it's a fascinating process for finding agreement and uh, and building agreement on those areas, those significant points where there persists some sort of disagreement. And 
clearly one of the things that you've been able to do throughout your career is to find agreement on those kinds of points, um, or at least on the big picture around those points, uh, time and time again, and often in situations when others couldn't. What, what are some of the tactics you use to either uh, bring agreement on those competitive points or to work around them? Well, it's, 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 it's one is, is listen, uh, try to understand where the other person is, is coming from. What is it that's driving? What is their concern? What is the reason behind uh, that? And secondly, I'm always looking for finding some kind of reasonable, reasonable compromise because, you know, getting to yes means you have to compromise. And so it's really having that open mind and to say, you know, I'm just not going to get everything that I want. Uh, and it's not reasonable to expect to want everything, uh, to get everything that you want. So what are the really important things that I just simply can't give on? And very often I found negotiations would get bogged down in petty, people digging their heels on petty stuff that really doesn't affect the big picture. And that's the way you, sometimes you have to sort of step back and say, okay, if I give on this, is it really going to matter? What's the probability of this thing happening? What's the chances? And if it does, we're still going to sit down and talk about it anyhow. So it's really putting, this is what we simply can't give up on. Here are the things we can compromise on and then, and then focusing on, on those. And hopefully the other side has the same approach, right? And that's the other thing. It takes two to tango. And so you can, you can have this approach if the other side is just trying to steamroll you and belligerent and, and, and it's my way or the highway. Well, of course, this only works if, 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 both, sides, if both sides are playing, playing that, that game in good faith. Well, John, this has been a fantastic discussion. Um, I, I want to step back to the beginning for just one minute because uh, I, I want to make sure we frame this discussion around polio and your work and uh, diplomacy as a tool uh, in the full context. Remind us how what polio looked like before Rotary stepped in in the 80s and what it looks like today, just to, to remind people of the progress sure. Rotary has led. Well, again, in, in 1985, as I mentioned, Rotary um, took on the audacious goal of eradicating a disease. Smallpox had just been eradicated several years earlier, and so there's proof of concept that it was possible to eradicate a disease. We did have the oral polio vaccine, which was uh, meant that anybody could be a vaccinator. You didn't need to be a health professional. So we had the vaccine and the tool in place to allow us to even undertake such an audacious, audacious goal. We had 125 countries where the polio was endemic. We had uh, 350,000 cases per year. And really it was through Rotary's initiative that we pulled together this global polio eradication initiative that in the early days included WHO, CDC, and, and, uh, and UNICEF, and we've been since joined by the Gates Foundation and by, and by, and by, and by Gavi. And so Rotary's role in, in this whole effort has really been threefold. One, it's to raise money, and Rotarians have raised over $2 billion over the years. Uh, for for polio eradication, it's a lot of walkathons, pancake days, uh, raffles, uh, etc. Uh, we advocate. We advocate with governments because we have a huge global presence everywhere in just about every uh, community in the world, and so we've been very effective at advocating for government for governments to both finance and support the polio eradication uh, 
uh, efforts. And the third is, you know, we've been sort of the boots on the ground. Uh, I think one of the reasons Rotarians have been able to stay focused passionately about polio over all these years and continue to give and continue to advocate is that anybody can be a vaccinator, Devin, polio vaccinator. As long as you're capable of squeezing the bottle and putting two drops into a child's mouth, you can be a vaccinator. And so you had hundreds and thousands of Rotarians going around the world participating in these vaccination campaigns. And when you do that, it, it, and for me, my first uh, immunization experience was in a slum in Mumbai in India. And we we're in this small little hut. Mothers are bringing their children in to, to get to vaccinate their children. I'm putting two drops into each child's mouth. And all of a sudden, I look out the window and I see four kids crawling across the street with polio. And at that moment, I said, wow, that simple act of putting two drops in that child's mouth, that I, which I've now been doing, is going to prevent that child from ever having to suffer what those four poor children outside were doing, crawling across the street with polio. And at that point, the cause became not just check writing for something that I was intellectually interested in. It became emotional. It became personal. And I think we had hundreds of thousands of Rotarians doing this who became emotionally invested in this, in this cause. And that, I think, drove a lot of this, this, this passion that the Rotarians have maintained over the last 30-some years for, uh, for polio uh, eradication. So it's an extra- extraordinary story. Uh, and I think it's an important story for anyone who's interested in global health because it's probably the most successful public-private partnership ever in the area of, of public health, global public health. And it has to succeed, Devin because we need to prove to the world that it's possible. And if we are unable to eradicate polio, and we, we won't fail, we, ha- we cannot fail, it's going to be very difficult then to get people to rally around the next similar type of global initiative. So even if your cause may be some other thing that's not polio, you have a vested interest in making sure that polio gets eradicated to prove that it is possible and set the stage for the next sort of polio equivalent in the global yeah. health arena. Yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's an amazing reminder. Now, John, just to wrap up. uh, Well, if I could, Devin, one thing I did forget, if I could just ask, you talked about diplomacy. And one thing is very important that I forgot to mention in the polio effort. And that is that um, because you have to get to the children, it's very difficult to vaccinate uh, in conflict areas. And so what the polio effort was able to do in terms of using diplomacy with a big D in terms of international relations is to go to those conflict areas for example, in Sri Lanka, Salvador, and other places, go to both combatant sides and say, can we stand down for three, four days? We call them days of tranquility to allow the polio vaccinators to come in to vaccinate the kids, and then we'll clear out, and then you can continue fighting. Those days of tranquility in numerous cases actually led to a peace process being initiated between the warring factions who stood down to let the vaccinators come in and built off of that to eventually lead to a lasting, a lasting peace. And so it wasn't just diplomacy at the community level. It wasn't just com- com- diplomacy at the international level to get support from all of our partners and everyone else to work on this. But it was also real kind of classical diplomacy of taking two warring factions, having them stand down for a few days. And then that led to an eventual peace process and the end to that conflict which is kind of diplomacy with a big D on a huge and a huge pedestal with a great, with a great result. Yeah. Well, that is uh, a fantastic, fantastic reminder about the context of this discussion. So thank you very much, John. And just one last point of punctuation. I think you have led the effort to raise 
personally on the order of $80 million for polio with your annual bike rides? Is well, that right? it's a little bit over 50 and it's, it's, it's been the effort of the rotary world. I've just sort of, was sort of initiated it, but yes, we've been, there is a, a huge bike ride every November in Tucson, Arizona called El Tour de Tucson. And about 10 years ago, the Rotarians in the Tucson area, it's, it, it probably draws eight, 9,000 riders from around the country and around the world. Uh, and, um, it's a hundred and some mile bike ride around the perimeter of Tucson. Uh, and so Rotarians in Tucson started using that about 10 years ago as a fundraising vehicle and then asked me to kind of get involved in, in the cause. I'm a very avid cyclist. And so I did, and I sort of threw the full weight of my office and our sort of fundraising machine that we have at Rotary. And, uh, and pretty soon we had, you know, Rotarians from all over the world, extraordinarily generous supporting uh, the bike ride, and not just me, all the Rotarians who participate and ride uh, in that in that ride, and it's been, it's been great. With with the Gates match, we have a two to one matching arrangement with the Gates Foundation, where they give us a two dollars for every dollar we raise for polio eradication. And so, with the Gates match, we've raised over over fifty million dollars through that ride for for polio. It's a great testament to Rotarian generosity all around the world and. The, and the power of cycling. <laughs> yeah, it also power, keeps you fit. The power it, of a great, uh, power me, of a so great, that's great. great cause. Yeah. Well, John, thank you very, very much for taking the time to, to come back and talk to us again. Uh, you've been very helpful in helping us understand how to actually behave and comport ourselves in a diplomatic way to, to reach uh, agreements on difficult issues. And that's super helpful. So thank you very, very much. Uh, I really appreciate it. Devin, again, thanks for having me. All righty. Let's do some good. Thank you for tuning in to the Superpowers for Good show. Twice each week, we host changemakers who share their impact, insights, and superpowers. Don't miss another episode. Subscribe today at superpowersforgood.com. That's superpowers, number four, good.com. Don't forget, get your copy of the book, Superpowers for Good, as an ebook, audiobook, paperback, or hardcover edition via your favorite online retailer.